What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to episode number 139 of the VK Bros. With me, the one VK bro, Jason Von Cannell. Uh, Alex is away on an awesome boys trip this weekend down to the Formula One. So you're left with me, but if you stick around, I guarantee you're going to enjoy the show. Obviously, there's a lot of things going on around the world at the moment. You've got the indictment of Donald Trump. You've got, just this morning, it's Saturday morning now, the uh, Tate brothers have just been released into house arrest. You've got... You know, the impending uh, end of American dollar as the world's reserve currency. Now, I'm not going to be talking about any of that stuff today. Because that will all be covered by a whole different... They'll, they'll be covered by mainstream news. They'll be covered by a few other different channels. I want to talk about two things that I don't think anyone's talking about at the moment. And they definitely affect us closer to home here in Australia. So this is what we're going to be going through today. Our two main discussion points. The first thing we're going to be looking at is the TGA has finally been forced to release their non-clinical report on the Pfizer vaccine approval. So this report was written by the TGA of their understanding of Pfizer's trial data that was sent to them in regards to the approval for the Pfizer vaccine. And they have tried to hide this non-clinical report ever since the vaccines were approved. This was only just released in full. So there was a, a copy that's released a, a few months ago that was still heavily redacted. And there are still some redacted points in this non-clinical report, but uh, the there was a, a doctor, a lady from Melbourne who has been pushing through Freedom of Information Act request after Freedom of Information Act request to get access to this data. And we finally have it. And it is remarkable to see what the TGA knew when they approve this vaccine. I think you're really gonna to wanna to see this information. So we're gonna look at that and we're gonna sort of compare that to how the uh, messaging from the government around the vaccine rollout differed from the information they already knew. The second thing I'm gonna talk about today is Bill Gates, because Bill Gates has a new COVID investment, but I don't know if you've really heard of it yet. So we'll get to that later on in the show. So <clears throat> to start off with, let's go straight into this TGA non-clinical report. So <clears throat> you can see up here at the top, um, the, the file name is actually FOI and it's got the Freedom of Information request number. So like I said, this has only actually been released because of a Freedom of Information Act request. So this is the report that the TGA put together in January tw uh, 2021 and uh, obviously assessing the submission from the sponsor, which was Pfizer Australia Propriety Limited. And <clears throat> I'm just gonna scroll through a few things it's a 58-page document. There's a lot of very interesting things in here. There's a lot of um, very technical language in here as well, though. But they've got a bit of a summary up the top here. So obviously in here, it talks about what the, uh, the dose is going to be. So it was always supposed to be only two doses of 30 micrograms of mRNA. Uh, <clears throat> the vaccine itself was found to be uh, immunogenic in non-clinical studies in mice, rats, and rhesus macaques. Uh, the vaccine induced humoral and cellular immune responses in mice and monkeys. However, antibodies and T cells in monkeys declined quickly after five weeks after the second dose of the vaccine, raising long-term immunity concerns. So right from the beginning, they knew that long-term immunity was uh, possibly not happening and it was a concern. The next section here does say the vaccine protected monkeys from infection when challenged 55 days after the second vaccine dose based on viral RNA load and radiographic lung lesions. The vaccine dose in monkeys of 100 micrograms was higher than the proposed clinical dose of 30 micrograms. Now, just to consider that, it says later on in, in the document that 
the average weight of the monkeys that this was assessed on was six kilograms and they gave them 100 micrograms so i don't know what the average weight is of an adult male or an adult female but <clears throat> me personally i'm 105 kilos and my dose of mrna would be 30 micrograms if i went and got a pfizer shot whereas a six kilo monkey they gave 100 micrograms uh, and they did see that it uh, protected slightly from infection when challenged 55 days after the second shot. So a massive dose compared to what, what humans were given. Uh, this is interesting. Almost similar microscopic lung inflammation was ob observed in both challenged control and immunized animals after the peak of infection. So in other words, there was little to no difference between the lung inflammation of, an, of a vaccinated animal versus an unvaccinated animal. There were no studies on protection of older animals from SARS-CoV-2 infection or duration of protection after immunization. The animal studies were of short term. Long-term immunity was not assessed. The sponsor indicated that long-term immunity would be addressed by human data. So in other words, they only checked this on, on short term. They could never have suggested that you would get long-term immunity, but they planned on just assessing that as we vaccinated the entire population. <clears throat> this next point is very interesting. There are no distribution and degradation data on the S antigen encoding mRNA. What does that mean? That means they never tested where the mRNA would actually travel to in your body and encode those cells to create spike protein. The reason why is because when they actually assessed, and it explains this later on the document, when they assessed where the uh, lipid nanoparticle, which is uh, just to sort of go back and give, give the basics of how the vaccine works again for any of the, you who don't understand it. The uh, messenger RNA essentially goes into your body, was supposed to stay around the injection site, but as we'll see later on, they knew full well that it doesn't, that it didn't. And it travels around your body and basically wherever it ends up, it gets into the, your cells in that part of your body and it instructs those cells on how to produce the COVID spike protein. That protein is then obviously produced by those cells, then it's picked up on by your immune system and mounts your immune response. So when they were testing to see where the, liquid, uh, the lipid nanoparticle ended up in your body, they actually um, swapped out the S antigen encoding mRNA for a substance called luciferase. So they actually only tested this with a completely different substance. So they, they had no idea where the spike protein encoding cells were going to end up in your body. So <clears throat> we'll roll through a little bit more as well. Um, no repeat dose or re reproductive toxicity studies specifically with the novel excipients. Uh, so the novel excipients means novel, anything novel is is brand new is things that you're you're uh, they've never used before in a in a clinical setting okay uh, conclusions of recommendation and again I'm, I'm gonna run through this and then I'm gonna give you a breakdown of, of what I took out of it uh, so the primary pharmacology studies indicate the vaccine elicits both neutralizing antibody and cellular immune responses to the spike antigen in mice and monkeys and conferred some protection of monkeys from infection uh, antibodies and T-cells in monkeys decline quickly over five weeks after the second dose of vaccine, raising concerns over long-term immunity, which will be assessed by clinical studies according to the sponsor. So remembering, whenever they say the sponsor, that means Pfizer. Pfizer says that they'll assess it afterwards. Um, I, 
I'll go into a bit more detail later in the document. Short-term protection studies, lack of pharmacokinetic data uh, for the S antigen encoding mRNA. So that's where it goes in your body. Suboptimal dosing interval because they used a different dosing interval in the study than what they proposed for humans uh, in the repeat dose study. Lack of repeat dose toxicity studies in the second species and genotoxicity studies with novel excipients and lack of studies investigating potential for autoimmune diseases were noted. However, these deficiencies are either adequately justified by the sponsor or addressable by clinical data. So addressable by clinical data means we'll just assess it as we go. Uh, then, it's, then they go on to say there are no non-clinical objections to the provisional registration of the vaccine. Long-term immunity, vaccine-induced autoimmune diseases were not studied in the non-clinical program and should be assessed by clinical data post-provisional registration. Non-clinical studies on complement activation and stimulation of cytokine release are recommended unless these issues are addressed by clinical data. I'll get to that later. So again, I'm not gonna read through everything in here. I'm just gonna quickly scroll through and show you some of the things that I picked out which I thought were very important to bring up. And I've just highlighted some. I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes. It is 58 pages long, but if you wanna go and corroborate it yourself, go ahead. Um, so here, so in monkeys, the vaccine induced similar uh, anti-spike protein IgG, so those are the um, immunoglobulin factors, and SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing antibodies at the intramuscular dose of 30 or 100 micrograms, which was 5 and 17 micrograms per kilogram, respectively, based on a body weight of 6 kilos. That's what I was saying before, the monkeys they used were about 6 kilos. A booster dose three weeks after the first dose markedly increased the antibody titers. Antibodies gradually decreased after immunization and four weeks after the booster dose, the S1 binding and neutralizing titers reduced by three to seven fold. So they knew this right from the beginning that there was a fair, fairly high chance that the antibody protection you got from the vaccine itself was going to gr drastically decrease after about four weeks. <coughs> Not forgetting the fact that they also say that you're, you are, don't really get your protection until two weeks after your second dose as well. Uh, serum antibodies in the immunized monkeys were not followed up beyond four weeks after the booster dose. The sponsor stated that long-term immunity was being assessed in ongoing phase one studies in the US and Germany up to two years following vaccination. And these data would provide a more accurate measure of long-term immunity. So they didn't know and they planned on getting the information from injecting people and testing it that way. Um, so it does say here, so protection against infection, that the vaccine provided protection against SARS-CoV-2 challenge in rhesus monkeys after two immunization doses of 100 micrograms a dose. So remembering, 100 micrograms a dose for a six kilogram monkey compared to your adult human dose of 30 micrograms for whatever weight that you are. It also says here, while monkeys are not a good animal model of severe COVID-19 disease in humans, they are susceptible to viral replica replication and develop relatively mild lung pathology from SARS-CoV-2 infection. Very mild inflammation of lung tissues was observed in both control and vaccinated groups seven or eight days after challenge, so that's when they expose you to the virus, with no significant difference in inflammation score. So, no significant difference in inflammation of the lungs between vaccinated or unvaccinated monkeys. 
Now, what's interesting after that, it says comparatively younger monkeys, so two to four years old, were used in the study, which might have contributed to the absence of clinical signs and very mild hist histological pathology of lungs after virus challenge. So why this is interesting to me is this might have been an, an early hint that SARS-CoV-2 was not going to be particularly deadly to younger people because they use younger monkeys in this trial and they didn't see a difference in lung pathology between vaccinated and unvaccinated monkeys. So this probably should have been a hint for them straight off the bat. <coughs> Scrolling down, <coughs> excuse me, so I just might have a quick drink here. Okay, let's go down to the safety data. Uh, safety pharmacology, limited safety pharmacology parameters, example, body temperature, were investigated in the toxicity study in accordance with the WHO, the World Health Organization guideline on non-clinical evaluation of vaccines. Pharmacokinetics, so pharmacokinetics, so that's where the uh, medicine ends up in your body. Pharmacokinetic studies are generally not required for a vaccine per relevant guidelines. However, they are recommended for novel, new excipients or adjuvants used in the vaccine formulation, and in some cases for the antigen. The lipid nanoparticle in this vaccine contains two novel excipients, pharmacokinetics of which were studied in animal species and in vitro. What's in vitro? That's in a, in a, um, in a not a test tube, but a petri dish, I, sh I should say. In vivo is in, in humans, in vitro is in a, in a petri dish. In addition, tissue distribution of luciferase, so remembering that they swapped out the mRNA encoding, oh, sorry, the S antigen encoding mRNA for luciferase when they did do the lipid nanoparticle uh, distribution studies. So in addition, tissue distribution of luciferase expressed by luciferase encoding mRNA as a surrogate of the vaccine mRNA in the lipid nanoparticle formulation was also studied. So, mRNA slash expressed protein distribution and de degradation. So, the biodistribution of the mRNA and expressed antigen encoded by the mRNA component of the vaccine is expected to be dependent on the lipid nanoparticle distribution. So, I just want you to keep that in mind. They didn't test where the spike protein was going to end up in your body because they swapped out the, the vaccine mRNA for luciferase but they did test where the lipid nanoparticles ended up in your body and they expected that if the lipid nanoparticle can end up in that part of your body, then it was likely that those cells were going to start producing the spike protein. Okay, that's a key point. Uh, I won't go into that whole thing because I've already explained it. So novel excipients. So a single dose of intravenous study in rats used a lipid nanoparticle encapsulating luciferase mRNA demonstrated that both novel lipid uh, excipients, and I've got their technical names here, uh, in the lipid nanoparticle formulation rapidly distributed from plasma to liver, which was the only organ collected for analysis. So in this particular section, they only collected the liver. They didn't bother collecting any of the other organs, but they did later on. Uh... I won't go into, into that section. It's not really relevant. All right, toxicity. So <clears throat> a couple of key points on toxicity. The dosing interval was not optimum given that the immune response peaks two to three weeks after dosing and the clinical dosing interval is three weeks. In addition, the novel lipid excipients have long elimination half-lives. So a half-life is how long it takes for at least half of the substance to leave the body. Repeat dose toxicity studies with a dosing interval of two or three weeks would be more appropriate for investigating the potential toxicity of the vaccine. So this is what I was saying before. 
They didn't even use the same dosing interval as what they suggested using for humans. Uh, the sponsor indicated that, in quotes, as platform data was available, a shortened administration paradigm was used in the repeat dose toxicity studies in order to assess the toxicity of the vaccine with a shortened study timeline, allowing more rapid transition into clinical trials. So to me, that says they wanted to speed it up. Platform data were not provided for the TGA to review. So in other words, Pfizer has said, well, we've done this because there's, um, there's data available on this mRNA platform already, but we're just not gonna provide you with that data for you to review. So given the availability of clinical data, another repeat dose study in animals is not considered necessary. The shortcoming of the repeat dose toxicity study design should not preclude approval of the vaccine. So in other words, they, what they're saying here is because we're planning on testing this in so many humans, we don't need to do another test right now. Let's scroll down. Genotoxicity. No genotoxicity studies were conducted for the vaccine. This is in line with relevant guidelines for vaccines. Now, I, I understand that you can have relevant guidelines for vaccines, but this vaccine is novel. We've never used an mRNA vaccine before, so they're trying to apply old vaccine rules to a brand new novel technology. Uh, there were also no genotoxicity studies with the novel excipients, so they didn't test the vaccine nor the novel excipients either. The sponsor stated that the novel lipid excipients are not expected to be genotoxic based on in silico analysis. So in silico is computer modeling. <clears throat> Fascinating. Carcinogenicity. So, so obviously, genotoxicity. What, what is genotoxicity? Genotoxicity is essentially um, the ability of the substance to damage genetic information inside your cells. Okay. So the next one, they t the sorry, the next heading, carcinogenicity, which is obviously whether it's going to induce tumors or cancers. Carcinogenicity studies were not conducted. This is acceptable based on its duration of use. So that's, that's another key point here as well. What they're essentially saying is because we only expect to expose people to this vaccine two times, uh, we don't need to check if it's a carcinogen because we're not expecting there to be uh, enough exposure to it to cause cancers or tumors. And now it's what, two years into the vaccine rollout and some people are already on their fifth shot. Uh, I'm not going to go big into the reproductive toxicity side of things because they, their testing on rats only um, didn't indicate any issues with reproduction. Uh, immunotoxicity, so whether or not uh, this was going to affect your immune system. No dedicated immunotoxicity study was conducted. An in vitro study on stimulation of cytokine release in human uh, PBMC cells, not sure what that means, provided inconclusive results. So inconclusive. So they did an in vitro study and it was inconclusive. As expected, immune stimulatory effects were observed in pharmacology and repeat dose toxicity studies. No vaccine-related systemic intolerance or mortality was observed in studies. Now, this next section is, is uh, important too. No significant release of cytokines was observed in the repeat dose study of the vaccine. However... The number of animals studied for cytokines was small. There was only, they only studied three animals for this. And there was high inter-animal variation. So they studied three animals and there was high variation between those three animals. And that's where they stopped checking. Uh, so IFNY was increased in animals immunized with the vaccine. IFNY has been found to play a role in autoimmunity. 
Thus, autoimmune diseases are a potential risk of the vaccine, but this is addressable by the ongoing two-year clinical studies. So, why is this part particularly important? Number one, the reason why we have never successfully launched an mRNA vaccine in history is because every single time in the past the vaccine has gone to animal trials, they've experienced the same thing, which is essentially you vaccinate the animals, you get up front, you get the initial uh, immune response that you're hoping for, but then when those animals down the track were exposed to the wild type virus, they were having an overactive immune response. Uh, so essentially it, it's a term called antibody dependent enhancement. So the, the presence of the antibodies in the animal system was actually enhancing the uh, severity of the disease. And then they went into a thing called cytokine storm and the animals died. So that's the reason why I've never gotten an mRNA vaccine off uh, the ground before in the past. So just to, to go over that again, they only studied three animals for this and there was high inter-animal variation. So in other words, you're seeing something similar to what you would have seen in all these previous animal studies on mRNA vaccines. But they only tested three animals and they stopped checking. And they, they've even said in here, they know autoimmune diseases are a potential risk of the vaccine. But it's all good because we'll figure it out as we inject more people over the, the next two years. Think about a lot of the adverse events that we are seeing at the moment. Uh, one of the adverse events that uh, I remember saying this about 12 months ago. Remember when monkeypox was a thing? And one of my theories was that monkeypox wasn't really monkeypox. It was a sort of shingles uh, response as a vaccine adverse event. Shingles is an autoimmune response. So, and funnily enough, monkeypox has kind of disappeared as the uh, vaccination program has sort of been winding down. Anyway, let's continue on with, uh, with what's in this report. So pediatric use. The vaccine is not proposed for pediatric use and no specific studies in juvenile animals were submitted. Uh, but we ended up injecting... Now, we injected kids as young as six months old. In fairness to Pfizer, obviously they did separate studies with lower doses for that. So I'm not going to say that's a gotcha or anything like that because it's not. Um, comments on the non-clinical safety specification of the risk management plan. So key safety concerns arising from non-clinical data are adequately identified in the safety specification of the risk management plan. So they've, they've got a plan around it. That's fine. This one I thought was very interesting too. Uh, interactions with other medicines and other forms of interactions. There are no non-clinical interaction studies. The proposed statements should be assessed by the clinical evaluator. So think about this. They didn't test at all how this brand new novel medicine would interact with any other medications that you might be on. Who did we inject first? We injected the elderly. Who takes the most other medications every single day? Generally the elderly and the frail. They did no testing on whether or not this medicine would interact negatively or positively with any other medicines that you may have been on. But we approved it anyway. Continuing on, so there's a whole section here on fertility, pregnancy and lactation. Uh, it states no issues with, with uh, pregnancy or fertility. It does say uh, down here on use in lactation, so breast milk, it is unknown whether the vaccine is excreted in, in human milk. 
so they didn't know. Okay, those are the main parts of, of the top section, but I just want to scroll down here. Page 45 is, is very, very interesting. So page 45, so this table 4.2, mean concentration of radioactivity, sexes combined, so when they combine the results from males and females, in tissue and blood following a single intramuscular dose of 50 micrograms of mRNA in a rat. What does that mean? So the concentration of radioactivity, this is where they were uh, testing the, where the lipid nanoparticle was moving in the body by using the luciferase instead of the, uh, the spike encoding mRNA. And this is fascinating because you'll see here at the top, so the sample is of the different body parts. And then over here, it says total lipid concentration. So Mike, uh, I think it's uh, lipid equivalent to grams or mils. So in other words, how, uh, how much concentration of lipid nanoparticle was appearing in these different organs or tissues? And you have a look here on the side. So I just, I just want to go back to the beginning of the rollout. What did they say? They said they would inject the vaccine into your arm and the vaccine stays in the injection site. So that's why they inject it into the, sh the shoulder muscle. So it would stay in the injection site and that's where your body would have its immune response. Okay? Well, they knew the lipid nanoparticles. So remembering, they didn't test where the spike protein would end up, but they knew that the lipid nanoparticle, for, for audio listeners, let me read out where they ended up. Adipose tissue, so that's fat, adrenal glands, bladder, bone in your femur, bone marrow in the femur, brain, eyes, heart, injection site, kidneys, large intestine, liver, lung, lymph nodes of uh, mandibular, lymph node, mesenteric, muscles, ovaries, ovaries, pancreas, pituitary gland, prostate, salivary gland, skin, small intestine, spinal cord, spleen, stomach, testes, thymus, thyroid, uterus, whole blood plasma and blood plasma ratios. So the lipid nanoparticle ended up everywhere, everywhere in your body. And they still told you that it would stay in your shoulder. Now, remember, <clears throat> I wanted you to focus on it earlier on when I said the distribution of the spike protein was expected to depend on the distribution of the lipid nanoparticle. Well, they tested and the lipid nanoparticle went literally everywhere. So they expected that the spike protein would go everywhere in your body. Now, it gets worse. <clears throat> Up the top here is the concentration after certain periods of time. So you'll see here in the, in the columns, you've got 0.25 minutes, one hour, two hour, four hour, eight hour, 24 hour, and 48 hour. Now, in the, in the report, it says that the majority of the, um, the lipids accumulated Obviously, the injection site was number one, but then in the rest of the body, it mainly accumulated in the liver, in women's ovaries, and in the adrenal glands. Now, check this out. So let's look at adrenal glands. glands. After 0.25 minutes, uh, the number is 0.27. Then after an hour, it goes up to 1.48. Then two hours, it goes up to 2.72. Then four hours, it goes up to 2.89. Eight hours, it goes up to 6.8. 24 hours, it goes up to 13.77. And 48 hours, it goes up again to 18.21. So in other words, what that is telling you is that the, the concentration of the lipid nanoparticle in the adrenal glands 
conti continuously continued to increase over a two-day period, which is where they stopped checking. So we don't know how much more this would have continued to increase over time. We have no idea because they stopped checking after two days. Now, uh, bone marrow, so same story. It increases over time. So 0.48 after 0.25 of a minute. At, at two days, it's at 3.77, increasing steadily over that period of time. The liver, the liver was the most concentration. So started at 0.74 and increased all the way up to 24.29 over that period of time. But what, what terrifies me a bit, ovaries, women's ovaries, started at 0.104, and it increased all the way up to 12.26, and then they stopped checking. So remember early on in the vaccine rollout where a lot of people were concerned about things like potential fertility issues. So for anyone who doesn't know, every single woman is born with her entire amount of eggs that she will have for her entire lifetime from birth, right? So you can't get, you don't create more eggs. You're born with the, the total amount of eggs you'll have for your entire lifetime and reproductive cycle from birth. So explaining again how this vaccine works. Injected through your arm, disperses around the body. A large amount of it was concentrating in women's ovaries. How does the vaccine work? It goes into the cells where the lipid nanoparticle ends up and it encodes those cells to start producing spike protein. So if those eggs get encoded to produce spike protein, two things that happen. Number one, obviously you're gonna have spike protein in your ovaries, which is not gonna be good for your ovaries because the spike has been shown to be cytotoxic. And number two, your body will have an autoimmune response to it, where it will not only act to remove the spike protein, but will also try to remove the cells which are creating the spike protein. So if that just happens to be your eggs, goodbye. No eggs left. Disgusting. So I definitely suggest you go and have a look at this uh, yourself. So in their conclusions here, it says slow but significant distribution of lipid nanoparticles from the site of injection with major uptake into the liver, minor distribution in spleen, adrenal glands and ovaries. Uh, over 48 hours where they stopped texting even though all those numbers were continuing to increase at that time. So <clears throat> I just wanted to juxtapose this briefly with how the vaccine was first approved to us and how it was presented. So let's have a quick look here. So uh, this is Scott Morrison announcing the uh, approval of the vaccine. <clears throat> if it's gonna play for me. Here we go. Just uh, uh, earlier today, uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, Professor Skerritt, announced that they had approved the Pfizer vaccine for uh, people over... Just wanna pause it there. Um, remember, Professor Skerritt, John Skerritt, the head of the TGA, he just resigned a couple of months ago. We spoke about that on the show uh, when it happened. Do you think maybe Professor Skerritt resigned because he was in the background fighting the release of this non-clinical report that has his name all over it and he jumped before he got pushed? Aged over 16 years here in Australia. 
I note that this is not an emergency approval, as has been done in some other jurisdictions around the world. This is a formal approval under the ordinary processes uh, of, of the TGA. And we are one of the first... So, so remembering, we, so we have no emergency approval pathway in Australia. So it doesn't, it's sort of irrelevant that he's saying that. But he did want to throw it out there. It was a full approval based on the normal uh, procedures of the TGA. So apparently, this is normal. First countries, uh, in the handful of countries, to have gone through that comprehensive and thorough process here in Australia uh, to ensure the approval of that vaccine. Um, I spoke last night uh, with the regional and Australian heads of uh, Pfizer, and uh, they indicated, as the Prime Minister has said, that we uh, are likely to have on their shipping advice, which they've now been able to confirm, uh, first vaccines in Australia. Anyway, he just goes along, uh, on to say how many vaccines they've got coming. So, <clears throat> in other words, just, just in summary, how do they market it to you right from the beginning? Uh, the TGA has approved this using uh, the, the, the standard, like they didn't cut any corners. This is a standard approval process for vaccines, so you can be assured that it's going to be safe and effective. Uh, I checked quickly too, so there was an ABC News article around the time of the approval. So federal government's Pfizer uh, COVID-19 vaccine advertising crucial to uptake, experts says. So this is from the 27th of January, 2021. And I just want to scroll down here and just quickly say, uh, the first phase of the campaign features the head of the TGA, adjunct Professor John Skerritt, who insists vaccines will only be approved, in quotes, when we have enough evidence that they work and that they're safe. So, what? Let's let's just let's just summarize this because I want to move on to the next subject very uh, right now. But in summary, this is the normal TGA approval process, and this is what safe and effective means. In summary, long-term immunity was not assessed. There was no real difference in lung inflammation between vaccinated versus unvaccinated animals. There was no distribution data, so where it goes on the spike protein, as this was assessed with luciferase instead of the spike protein antigen encoding mRNA. The lipid nanoparticle distributes around the body, and they expected that the spike protein would be dependent on the lipid nanoparticle distribution. It mainly accumulated in the liver, ovaries, and adrenal glands, and they, it continued increasing that accumulation on day two, where they stopped checking. They have no data on how long the spike protein persists in the body. Genotoxicity, so its ability to damage genetic information in cells. Studies not conducted. Carcinogenicity, so whether or not it induces tumors or cancers. Studies not conducted. Reproductive toxicity studies only completed on rats. Did not show any issues. However, autoimmune targeting of reproductive cells that are generating spike protein cannot be ruled out. It is unknown whether the vaccine is secreted in breast milk. No dedicated immunotoxicity, so adverse events on the immune system studies conducted. No investigation on autoimmune disease, regardless of their finding that this is a potential risk of the vaccine. No studies on interactions with other medications conducted. So their final conclusion, the vaccine is safe and effective and all of you should go and take it. That's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. It should be on the news every single day, uh, but it's not. But you heard it here. And... Unfortunately, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, all I want to say to wrap this up is we were all lied to, okay? We were all lied to about this. So 
as much as a lot of people just want to move on from COVID because it's not really affecting their lives as much as it was a year ago, we can't move on from this until the people that were responsible for these lies and putting people in danger are held accountable for it. Because if we don't hold them accountable, it will happen again. Speaking of people who should be held accountable for uh, the vaccine rollout and the potential dangers, let's go to Bill Gates. Okay, so as a bit of a, uh, a rehashing, <clears throat> I want to step this out a little bit. So Bill Gates, you might remember us speaking about it. He came to Australia back in January and he spoke, uh, so preparing for global challenges in conversation with Bill Gates. So I've just only brought this up because of the, the date so on the 23rd of January, 2023, the Lowy Institute hosted philanthropist and investor Bill Gates for an in-person event. Mr. Gates spoke in conversation with Lowy Institute Executive Director Michael Fullerlove about global health, pandemic preparedness, food security, and climate change. So he spoke in Australia in, on the 23rd of January, 2023. So that's this year. Now, what did he say? got a short clip here of something very interesting that he spoke about and let's just roll this clip anyway so antibodies antivirals we think we can also have very early in an ep and epidemic a thing you can inhale uh that will mean that you can't be infected a, a blocker an inhaled blocker okay so he, he's saying that he thinks that you know you might be able to have like in some sort of inhaled blocker okay continuing we also need to fix the three problems with vaccines. The current vaccines are not infection blocking. Uh, they're not broad. So when new variants come up, you lose protection. And they have very short duration, uh, particularly in the people who matter, which are old people. And every one of those things is, is fixable. Uh, in fact, doing that work is going to help vaccinology very, very broadly. So, so I just want to... Uh... Let's just let's just rewind that because I've said this before. Bill Gates has a laugh tell when he knows he's full of shit. He laughs. So check this out again. Uh, in fact, doing that work. See, doing that work. That's his laugh tell. Uh, in fact, doing that work. Right. <clears throat> so what what's he talked about so we we knew the entire time throughout the pandemic and throughout the beginning of the vaccine rollout bill gates was one of the number one pushers of mrna vaccines so in this short clip that he said in january in australia he did two things number one he spoke about the ability to have some sort of nasal blocker and number two he completely rubbished the vaccines that he pushed for the last two years so why might that be so this, uh, this is sort of a bit more of a, a text breakdown of, of that news story that I was about to go into. But uh, so this is titled, so Bill Gates, after reaping huge profits selling BioNTech shares. So remember, the Pfizer vaccine is built in conjunction with the German company BioNTech. So it's the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So he trashes the effectiveness of the COVID vaccines. So they, they go through and they reiterate what we just watched. But then uh, it also says down here, bum, 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 bum. here we go. So, so these guys at Rising, who, were, who was where the story that that clip was from, um, so they said, Bill Gates was a major proponent of mRNA technology. He was an investor in BioNTech, which developed the mRNA vaccine for Pfizer. 
we were just doing some digging, continued uh, the, the journalist. And we saw that he sold a lot of those shares at, how much profit was that? 10x, replied the uh, Gray, the other reporter. So he invested $55 million in BioNTech back in 2019, and it's now worth north of $550 million. He sold some stock at the end of last year, I believe it was, with the share price over $300, which represented a huge gain for him over when he invested. So I didn't want to just take their word for it. I did a little bit of digging myself, and on uh, Markets Insider, so a subsidiary of Business Insider, so... So after Bill Gates dumps billions in Berkshire to buy Microsoft, his quiet biotech portfolio has made a new trade. So this is interesting. So Bill Gates actually has two different portfolios he makes trades from, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Trust. Uh, For the purpose of this article, uh, Benzinga will delve into the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is heavily concentrated in biotechnology and healthcare-related stocks. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. All I'm going to show you is down here under what are the top three positions is this section here. Gates sold at least 890,000 shares of BioNTech in the third quarter of 2021. Keep that in mind, third quarter of 2021, which used to be the top position in the second quarter of 2021, then accounting for 36% of the fund. Now BioNTech is Gates' third most owned position, accounting for 16% of the portfolio. So he sold 20% of his portfolio, of his BioNTech, Shares, sorry, 20% of his portfolio, which was in BioNTech, uh, in the third quarter of 2021. So I did some digging and I thought, let's have a look at the BioNTech stock price. Now, funnily enough, BioNTech, if you actually go to the max um, years, BioNTech has actually only been around since the 10th of October 2019. So as the article stated before, Bill Gates invested in BioNTech in 2019. So he put $55 million and the earliest stock price that I can even pull up here is $14.24 a share. So let's pretend that that's what he bought it at. Okay. Now, he sold his shares in third quarter 2021. So your third quarter is July, August, September, somewhere around there in 2021. So if you see down the bottom here, so we've got Feb 2021, June, so he sold somewhere during this period. So it could have been, uh, so the 1st of July, the stock price is $224 a share. It goes up to a max of $359 a share in August. Um, and the last stock price he could have sold it at is, well, I'm assuming it's, it's here where the big drop is. So I'm assuming he sold at about $341 per share. So bought in at 14 bucks and sold at $341 per share. And look at what the stock price has done since then. So when everyone talks about Bill Gates being this healthcare philanthropist, well, philanthropy is pretty good business if you can buy in at $14 and you can sell out at $340. Bucks. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good way of donating your money is getting 10x back. So anyway... What else came out of that clip? The nasal blocker. Well, great news, everyone. From BBC News, Bharat Biotech. India launches its first nasal COVID vaccine. Now, I want you to pay very particular attention. What's the date here of this article? The 27th of January, 2023. So consider this. Bill Gates sold the majority of his stock 
in late 2021, which obviously, uh, remember early on in the vaccine rollout, um, all the world's governments were clamoring over potentially getting access to the first available vaccines. So I would assume that by the uh, time Bill Gates sold all of his shares in BioNTech, all those orders had already been placed. He'd already made his money. Okay. On the 23rd of January, he made a speech at the Lowy Institute where he talked shit about the vaccines and he spruced the uh, potential of a nasal blocker. Four days later, Bharat Biotech in India has launched their first nasal COVID vaccine. Now let's read on. India has approved its first nasal COVID vaccine made by Bharat Biotech. Invocac, oh sorry, Incovac, I should say, is administered in the form of drops and stimulates an immune response in the tissues that line the nasal cavity. Now, just one thing on this, uh, if, it, if it works, this is actually good news because one of the big criticisms of any person who, were, who understood virology uh, and vaccinology at the beginning of the vaccine rollout, what they were screaming until they were blue in the face was that an intramuscular injection of a vaccine was never going to stimulate mucosal immunity in your nose. And as COVID is a respiratory virus, you, you really need mucosal immunity to stop the virus on its way into your body. So this nasal spray, in theory, is probably the right way to go because it's going to block it before you get systemically ill. Okay? Uh, let's continue. Um, in September 2022, China had approved an inhaled COVID vaccine administered in the form of a spray. Scientists say that nasal vaccines may offer added immunity in the lining of the nose and upper airways where tip COVID typically enters the body. So I find that wording interesting, may offer added immunity. So I think they mean on top of your other mRNA vaccines as well. Research teams in the UK and the US have also been investigating nasal spray vaccines. In November, India's drug regulator approved the use of Incovac as a heterologous booster dose, a booster for people who had previously received two doses of Covishield or Covaxin, which are their uh, two main Indian vaccines, in emergency situations among adults. In December, it was approved by the drug regulator as a primary vaccine and as a subsequent booster shot in adults. The vaccine will cost 800 rupees, or about 10 US dollars per dose in private hospitals, and 325 rupees per dose in government hospitals and can be booked on the government's online platform. So you're talking somewhere between 10 US dollars and 4 US dollars per dose. Um, what's the population of India? Maybe, was it a billion people or something like that? So a billion times 10, that's $10 billion. It's, it's not bad. Oh, sorry, two doses that'd be taken 28 days apart. So 20 billion bucks from your initial uh, vaccination series, which we are... Uh, Sure that it won't be the end of your vaccination series. Incovac uses a adenovirus as a carrier for the genetic code that teaches the body how to fight the infection. Adenoviruses used in the vaccines are harmless transporters which have been modified so they cannot replicate or cause infection. Dr. Krishna Ella, chairman of Bharat Biotech, told ANI News Agency that the vaccine was easy to deliver as it didn't need a syringe or needle and that it produced a broader immune response as compared to injectable COVID vaccines. So India has administered over 2 billion COVID jabs so far. More than 70% of the Indian population has taken at least two doses, according to the Federal Health Ministry. So if you just extrapolate that out and you go, okay, there's 2 billion COVID jabs they've already done. If you add on um, an extra 2 billion of these sprays, it's a, it's a significant amount of money. So anyway, so Bharat Biotech, Indian company. So I did some more digging. Bharat Biotech... Uh, so up here on Crunchbase, we can get a bit of uh, business information. 
So funding, Bharat Biotech has raised a total of $14.1 million in funding over three rounds. Their latest funding was raised on June 3rd, 2020 from a grant round. Bharat Biotech is funded by three investors, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and Subcam Ventures are the most recent investors. So I did more digging. Who's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations? Well, they are a not-for-profit. Uh, <laughs> I love saying not-for-profit when you're talking about such large sums of money, which is sold for profit. But anyway, they're a not-for-profit, which, as the name suggests, is supposed to assist in epidemic preparedness and uh, technology innovations to protect people when these things happen. So I jumped on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation website and had a look under their grants and I just searched for uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations. And funnily enough, they are funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And you'll see here, uh, back in August 2022, they committed a grant of $150 million. So Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gave the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness $150 million, which they then went and invested in Bharat Biotech. So are you starting to see how this works? So Bill Gates' foundation invests in a non uh, a, a, a sort of proxy company, which gives them a step removal that, that invests in this Indian biotech firm. Okay? Now, I thought, okay, let, let's just like sort of keep looking. Uh, if you actually scroll down, Bill Gates has been uh, investing in the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness for quite some time. So there was 400 grand given to them in October, 2021. There was $1.4 million given them to them in September, 2021. There was $20 million given to them in October, 2020. So again, what happened just after October, 2020? Well, vaccines were released in America in, in December. Prior to that, uh, November 2017, they gave them $98 million in November 2017. And the first um, grant was given to them back in May 2017 of $1.9 million. But I found this $98 million com uh, the most staggering because... As we've sort of discussed before, there, there are so many issues with not only the vaccine rollout and the global cartel based around it, but there's also been issues where, you know, there's been the things like Moderna, for example, had patented uh, their mRNA technology back in 2017. So it's almost as if all of these people knew that something big was coming and that they were getting their ducks in a row to be able to profit from it. So in, in closure on the Bill Gates side of things, this is, this is how Bill Gates rolled during the pandemic. Now, remembering, Bill Gates never even finished college, doesn't have a medical degree. His entire career has been built on patent protection law. It's the only way he's made money. With Microsoft, he was just smart enough to patent it, so uh, he got all the proceeds from that technology, and then he's done that ever since. Also, remembering at the beginning of the vaccine rollout, Bill Gates was the one who pushed back against uh, making the 
vaccine formulas freely available so it can be pr produced all around the world. And he tried to say that, oh, no, it's like, you can't do that because there needs to be these quality controls and these uh, other manufacturers, they're not equipped to be able to do it. So you have to have the quality control of these vaccines. So he pushed back against it and he created a for-profit model with these vaccines. We've seen how much money he made out of his BioNTech shares. He spruiked the mRNA vaccine while he was invested in BioNTech. He sold out of BioNTech and it's shortly afterwards he talked shit about the vaccines and all of their problems. And then he spruiked some potential new technology. And anyone who watched Glass Onion, it was a terrible movie by the way, but remember when they were just about to get on the, like, the boat or the plane, I think it was a boat at the beginning of it to go to the island and they sprayed them with a, it was like a COVID nasal vaccine. Like that was product placement. That was clear product placement. Okay. So they've, they've, they've already put it out there in, in, um, in the movies to plant the seed that this is something that could happen. Right. Then they've announced, oh, so he has a little speech where he goes, oh, like, you know, we, we think maybe that, you know, we might have this blocker. He, he knew that this thing was in development because he fucking invested in it. And now he's pretending, oh, it might, might be, it might be thing, might be not. Bill Gates is absolute evil. He is not a philanthropist. He is a money-hungry, profiteering piece of shit. And all he has done is he has manipulated the media. He's the primary investor into the Trusted News Initiative, which is what started the whole censorship campaign. He manipulates global health policy because the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the largest donor to the World Health Organization, which is run by a criminal. Anyone, if, you, if you're interested in going down a rabbit hole, look up Tedros and his history, who runs the World Health Organization. He's a criminal. So Bill Gates controls the media through the Trusted News Initiative. He controls global health policy through the World Health Organization. He invests in all of these different biotech firms and then he positions them as at the forefront of the profiting profiteering out of these global pandemics which we've also just had confirmed came from a lab that they created too if we don't learn from this and hold these people accountable we are doomed to repeat it and on that peachy note i'll leave it there thanks very much for joining me guys we'll see you next week